seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, chapter 9. We'll look at the first part, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Uh, So we're starting a new chapter in John's Gospel. Um, It is connected with what's gone before and what comes after, but uh, we'll give a few introductory comments to it as we're beginning this new chapter, which really is kind of one one story, John 9, uh, one coherent story altogether. Uh, The section, it starts in chapter 7 and it ends in the middle of chapter 10, this this, uh, larger section in John's gospel that 9 is a big part of. Uh, And it starts, so in in chapter 7, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He went up to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and he went up, um, it says he went up privately. And that word, uh, the Greek word is where we get our word uh, encrypted from. He went encrypted. He went uh, privately. He went in secret in some sense. And then, uh, no longer in secret, in uh, chapters 7 and 8, the bulk of 7 and 8, he's in the temple during the feast out in the open publicly proclaiming the gospel about himself. He's teaching publicly, uh, especially about himself, that he is God, that he reveals God that he gives God to those who come to him with faith. And that the people who hear him uh, end up responding with resistance. That's the main response that people have, resistance, uh, even hostility. And the conflict escalates to the point where at the end of chapter 8, which we looked at last week, uh, he hides, again, that word, he encrypts himself and leaves the temple. And now we have him going on his way out of the temple or around Jerusalem, still at the same time, still um, uh, actually we find out later in in chapter 9 on the Sabbath day, sort of the Sabbath day that closes up the feast. Um, So for for, um, most of chapter 9, though, Jesus stays hidden. He stays encrypted in the background while the focus is on others. The focus is on the blind man that he heals. The focus is on that guy's neighbors or that guy's parents or the, the, the interactions with the Pharisees that they have, the leaders of the, the Jews, the religious leaders, uh, the temple leaders. And the focus is there on these others as the gospel drama unfolds through their interactions with each other. So we're learning something about Jesus, but it's through the interactions that these other people have. That's primarily what we get in chapter 9. And uh, the truths uh, of of this larger section, the truths that are at the heart of this larger section that that John 9 is a part of, they're really illustrated in these real-life events that you get in the story of uh, the blind man in John 9. So uh, without wanting to give away too much up front, this section is about Jesus. (laughs) Kids, you probably knew I was going to say that. That's like the Sunday school answer. That's what the Bible's about. That's what uh, our passage is about, certainly. It's about Jesus even though he's hidden, and here at the beginning of John 9, he has some actions that, it, that we're seeing, but uh, even though through the, through the chapter he's hidden, he's encrypted, he can give us eyes to see. He can give us eyes to see what these things mean. He can give us hearts that recognize and embrace him for who he really is, and that's the whole point. That's the whole point of why we're here. That's the whole point of the scriptures, so that we can see Jesus. We need to see Jesus, and actually we need him to open our eyes so that we can see him, and that is, of course, why we pray before the reading of God's Word. So let me do that, and then we'll read the Scripture. 
Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world, that you've revealed yourself very clearly in him, in his life, and in his actions. And we pray that you would teach us now that we would come to Jesus as our teacher, and that you would uh, send your Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see Jesus, so we can see you as you are revealed in Christ so that we can see this revelation and not reject it, but embrace it through faith. That would be your work. So we pray for your work now as we hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As he passed by, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So Jesus grants sight to the man born blind whose eyes had never worked. His eyes had never worked. There was something just wrong with them from the beginning, from birth. Uh, And his granting sight to this man is a wonderful thing in and of itself. I'm sure anyone with a disability, anyone with chronic illness, anyone with deep suffering, when they read passages like this, could wish that Jesus would take notice of them and make these things go away that plague us, make these difficulties in our life, these pains, these deep sufferings, make them go away. But this is more than, uh, it's more than just a kind deed that's really amplified by Jesus' superpowers. Uh, It's a sign. It's a picture. It's a picture of something bigger. It's an illustration of a greater spiritual truth. Ultimately, Jesus has the ability to fix a more significant problem with the human condition than uh, just a man whose eyes haven't worked since he was born. Uh, John tells us the purpose for recording the things that he does, the events, the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. John tells us the purpose of writing these things down in, uh, in his gospel. At the end of the gospel, he says in chapter 20, verse 31, these signs are recorded. So they could have, could have chosen a whole bunch of different signs that Jesus performed, but these ones are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's written down so that you would believe in Christ. Throughout this chapter, and you should should go home and read the whole chapter all at once, all together. Sorry, we just didn't take the time to do that. Uh, John's John's chapter 9 there is uh, all one story, and it all really works together. And we'll we'll talk about... um, the ways that it's sort of knit together in the coming weeks. 
But throughout this chapter, we see that not only does Jesus give physical sight to this blind man, but the man's spiritual perception of Christ, it, uh, as, as the Son of God, it increases. He, he comes to have increasing clarity about who Jesus is in stark contrast with the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders who are interrogating him. Uh, the important thing about this whole chapter is that the blind man comes to be able really to see Jesus and to recognize him as the true God and the Savior that he needs. And again, we'll come back uh, to hit on different facets of this restoration of his spiritual sight. That's the main point here. This blind man is not just able to see physically now, he's able to see and understand who Jesus is and embrace him. Um, and so we'll come back to hit on the restoration of his spiritual sight, the different facets of that, and how it contrasts with the spiritual blindness uh, that we see in others as we proceed through chapter 9. But this morning, our focus will be limited. Uh, we're going to focus in on one of the hardest things for people to see, actually. It's one of the most opaque areas of spiritual blindness, and it's, uh, it's our suffering. It's hard to see when we're suffering. Pain overwhelms us. It gives us tunnel vision. It limits our field of view. And when we have as our starting point, as we endure our suffering, when we have as our starting point wrong assumptions about God and wrong assumptions about our suffering and the wrong questions for God in our suffering, then we're really just unable to see any good at all. Um, ultimately, this is a problem with our spiritual sight. It's a problem with our ability to see God, to perceive Him, to understand Him, and to know Him. So, at the beginning of this interaction with Jesus and the blind man, His disciples ask Him, this is a very important question, Rabbi, teacher, so they're, they're going to him as the one who will instruct them. They, want, they have a question that they want to answer. Um, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? We want to we know how to make sense of our sufferings. Our sufferings are confusing. We want to know why they happen. Maybe because we think confusion is actually the worst part of the sufferings. Enduring suffering while confused is probably more painful than enduring suffering just in and of itself, right? But, but their question, and probably ours too, it betrays a deep, faulty assumption about the situation. Deep, faulty assumptions about, ultimately about God. They assume that the man has suffered a lifetime of blindness as punishment for sin. That's their assumption. They don't ask a broader question like, why is he suffering? They ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? It's got to be one of those, right? That, that he would endure a lifetime of suffering blindness. They assume that it's, for, it's a punishment for sin, either his own, somehow before he was born and committed any sins, he was being punished uh, in advance, or, uh, or his parents' sin, right? A lot of people believe in karma, <clears throat> it's sort of like the spiritual law version of Newton's third law of physics. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So with karma, with the karma paradigm, your good deeds produce happiness, 
and your bad deeds bring down hard consequences and suffering, not just in this life, but in the next also, but in this life. Um, but that's too impersonal, right? Karma, that's not what the disciples were thinking. It's too impersonal. And, and Jesus' disciples believed in a personal God. So they weren't just assuming that somebody's sin automatically, sort of, or maybe magically, resulted in this man's suffering the due punishment. They assumed God was punishing him. That's what they assume. Their question could be rephrased, whose sin is God punishing here, that this man is blind, that he was born blind? Whose sin is God punishing? It's the same kind of view, actually, that Job's counselors held when they said that God must be punishing Job for some unknown sin of his, some sin of which he was unaware, and that if he would just discover that sin, confess it, repent, fix himself, clean himself up, and stop sinning, then God would remove the suffering and restore him to happiness, which when you read the book of Job, you're confronted with the fact that that's not the right way to think about this. That's not the right way to think about suffering and God's interaction with Job through his suffering. You get a lot of self-righteous religious jerks holding this view, though. I've been one of them. And we end up condemning others in their suffering. And a lot of times, the religious person's version of the disciple's question is, how can I justify ignoring this person in his plight? Did he deserve it? Does he deserve the suffering that he's got right now? Can it be shown that he brought it on himself? Then it must be right that he's suffering the due punishment. But ultimately, that's a pretty hard view of God. Not just the circumstances and not just other people. That's a really hard view of God, that he's the type of God to run a program like that. And a lot of people believe that God and suffering and punishment are linked in such a way that proves God is cruel and vindictive. The disciples are struggling with the question. That's good. If anyone's going to struggle with this question, it ought to be Christians. It ought to be people who follow Jesus, who go to him for answers. It seems like the skeptics are the only ones who want to ask such questions, maybe more often as a, as a challenge, sort of a gauntlet thrown, um, thrown out there rather than from some real need, like a desperate place where I, I need these answers for myself. I'm struggling here. Maybe it's more of a challenge from the skeptics. <clears throat> but, uh, but Christians are often afraid that such questions about the nature and purpose of our suffering, they express too much doubt. Right? We, don't, we don't let ourselves struggle with questions like that because we don't want to flirt with unbelief. We don't want to walk that, that fine line or walk the edge of that cliff. Maybe... Maybe we're just really afraid not to have all the answers. We're just afraid to be confused about our suffering. But, but when we ignore the question that the disciples are asking here, when we ignore the question, we're stuck with our own unexamined assumptions. We're stuck. So it's a good thing the disciples ask their teacher about it. 
you should ask Jesus your honest questions. You should ask Jesus your honest questions. Think of the Psalms. It's full of honest questions for God, emotional questions, questions during times of suffering. You should ask Jesus your questions like they did. But Jesus has a different set of assumptions about God and about suffering. And just about the only thing he shares with his disciples is is the assumption, the, the belief that God's actually in control of the situation. The disciples assume that. It's implicit. And Jesus assumes that too. God is in control of this situation. There is an answer to the question, why? There is an answer to the question, why? Maybe you don't think we should say that. Maybe you think that the modesty of agnosticism is preferred on such deep questions, but there is an answer to the question why, and Jesus gives it. It's going to be very hard to see, very hard to believe, so Jesus goes to work, and he says, this really is the answer to to the question, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the answer to the why question. God has arranged this, but not as punishment. Not as punishment. Jesus insists, you can't fully explain suffering. You might be able to explain it sometimes here and there, little parts of it, little aspects of our suffering this way, but you can't fully explain suffering by saying, we're just getting what we deserve. You can't fully explain suffering by saying, we live in a broken world. What do you expect? You can't fully explain suffering by saying, it's the result of original sin, the fall, our inherited sin, the, the, the sins we've committed, my sin, my personal sin. You can't, you can't fully explain suffering that way. Basically, you can't say about suffering that we suffer because things are ultimately bad can't explain suffering that way. Jesus won't let us. Hard as it might be to hear, there's a better reason than all that, than all the bad reasons. God orchestrated this so that we could see the works of God. According to Jesus' definition that he gave in uh, chapter 6 of John's gospel, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent that you believe in Jesus Christ. That's the work of God. And that's why he says this man was born blind, so that we can believe in Jesus Christ. This man was born with eyes that didn't work, and he endured a lifetime of blindness. And I'm not going to minimize the suffering that that implies. That's, that's a hard life. And a lot of us have chronic pain, chronic illnesses, and lots of different ways in which we suffer. I'm not going to minimize those things. He endured all this, though, so that he could meet Jesus. So that we could meet Jesus. So that we could see Jesus and believe in Jesus. That's the works of God. This man's suffering is a picture for us all 
of what is probably the hardest thing to see in this world. Suffering is an opportunity to meet God in Jesus Christ. Suffering, something nobody wants to go through. It's an opportunity to meet God in Jesus Christ. Job learned this. Job uh, was not being punished for his sins. We know that. He was not being punished. And after all his suffering, and after all his tormented questions, and lots of wrong-headed questions, he saw God. And that's the main point. God came to him. God spoke to him from the whirlwind. God had a cosmic-level conversation with Job and blessed him and restored him and raised him from the ashes. And Job, Job, I mean, that book is the book on suffering that we have in the Scriptures. And at the end of it, Job saw the Lord's compassionate purpose. He got to meet God. That was the Lord's compassionate purpose. Job met God. It was all an opportunity for him. The worst things that ever happened to anybody, recorded in Job, it was all an opportunity for him to grow in his relationship with the true God. Maybe not the path he would have chosen if he were planning out his life for himself, but I guarantee that Job looked back on it all afterwards and was thankful. Thankful to God and considered it worth it. In a similar way, this blind man in our chapter in John 9, he got to see what God was really like. He got to see that up close and personal. Jesus saw him. That's what it says in the first verse there. He saw him. He looked upon him. He took notice of him in his plight. And now you're seeing how good Jesus is. Wherever Jesus is in the world, he's the light that revealed God. And this is the revelation of God. He healed that man. And he revealed himself to him. God is the kind of God who heals broken, hurting people and reveals himself to them for a relationship. That's what kind of God we're talking about when we see Jesus Christ. You can see that. You can see that now. You can see that because of this story. You can see that because of the scriptures. You can see that and believe. Jesus reveals a good God to us. God is the kind of God who arranges all things, everything in your life, even your pain, for good. He arranges it for good if we understand good to mean he's arranging it for us to have a deeper relational knowledge of himself in Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate good. It says in Romans 8.28, familiar verse, probably especially for Reformed Calvinist churches that believe in God's sovereignty. Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If God is your highest love, then all things are working together for the good of that love. 
Even things like, Paul goes on to say, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, things we would rather avoid, things that hurt. But even these things, and not just because, not just because God can um, snap his fingers and fix all these things, fix all your pain, take it away instantly when you ask. He can do that, and sometimes he does that, and he will do that once and for all in the new heavens and the new earth at the resurrection. All terrible things will come untrue in the, the twinkling of an eye. But these things, these tribulations, these distresses, the dangers that we face, the pain, the suffering, these things work to connect us more deeply to Jesus, to help us to trust more in our Savior and to become more like him. <clears throat> it says in Romans 5, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces a hope that doesn't disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us because Jesus died for us. That's why we can rejoice in our sufferings. It is the highest good to know God, to know what God is like, to have a relationship with Him. That's the highest good. What it's, the highest good is to know what it's really like to be Jesus, to have a relationship with Him as He reveals God to us. And since He suffered, He didn't exempt Himself from suffering. Since Jesus suffered, since God suffered in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, our suffering is a chance to be able to relate to him. What a privilege. Every suffering is a chance to relate to Jesus Christ, to know what it's like for him, to be him, to know that God isn't just out to punish us for our sins, but that he provides opportunity through our sufferings to meet him. What a privilege. 2 Corinthians 4 says, These momentary light afflictions are preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. The sufferings of this life cannot be compared to the eternal weight of glory of what it means to know God in Jesus Christ. And that's the hardest thing to see, that he provides opportunity for us to know him through our sufferings, that's the hardest thing to see, and in fact, the spiritually blind cannot see it. So, Jesus makes us know that he is able to restore such sight to us. Just like he can make a physically blind man to see, a man who's never seen a photon in his entire life, who just did not have the capacity to see who was right there in front of him, Jesus can also make us to see God in ways that we never could before, that you just can't in your spiritual blindness. In order to open our eyes, he needs to make us a new creation. That's a pretty constant theme in the scriptures. He needs to make us new, like that first creation that he made, but new. He needs to make us new in order to open our eyes. He needs to change us in fundamental ways from the ground level in ways that we just cannot change ourselves, just like you didn't create yourself. 
<clears throat> and that's the significance of the manner in which he heals, he, he heals the blind man. He could have just spoken the word, snapped his fingers, and restored the man's sight. But he slowed down, and he got personal, and what was one action became four actions, just as he, God, had done when he created Adam on the sixth day. He had formed Adam from the dust of the ground, as uh, potter works with clay. It's a picture you see a lot of times throughout the scriptures, a potter working with clay, and now, now with this man, this blind man, he spits on the ground and he makes the clay, he makes the mud, and he anoints the, the blind man's eyes, at least symbolically making new eyes for him. And then Jesus sends the man to wash in the pool of Siloam. And these were the waters that, um, remember a few weeks ago when we looked at this in John 7, these are the waters that are used in the ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles, poured out in the temple in anticipation of the river of life going forth for, for the healing of all nations. They got, it, they got that water out of this pool, the pool of Siloam. And John can't resist tying it all together with the meaning of the pool's name. Etymologically, it comes from the Hebrew verb uh, sent. He points that out. Jesus, doing the works of the one who sent him, sent the blind man to the pool called Sent to receive his sight. And this is what it means to receive true sight, spiritually seeking, the ability to see God. To recognize him is the ability to know the sent one, to know the one God sent, the Son sent by the Father, Jesus, to know Jesus, to know that Jesus came from God, he's God's representative, he reveals God, and for us to receive the message that God has sent. That's what it looks like when Jesus opens our eyes spiritually. You have the privilege of knowing God because he sent Jesus to restore your spiritual sight of God. And now you can know, now you can know like the blind man, that you were set up for this vision all along. You were set up for this meeting, for this opportunity of knowing God. It was all majestically orchestrated. You can know that your sufferings, they're not the punishments of God. Your sufferings are not the punishments of God. They aren't God keeping you at a distance or keeping you down. They don't testify that things are ultimately bad for you in this world and in your relationship with God. Your sufferings don't say that because it's not what they are. Everything in your life, every setback, every loss, every ounce of pain is a chance to be able to relate to Jesus to draw closer to him, to walk through this life with him, and someday to walk through death with him and enter into glory with him. All because ultimately the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, he's the sufferer. That's what it means to be Jesus. He's the sufferer. He suffers for the sake of love. He's the one who made us a new creation through his own suffering especially his suffering at the cross. God, his Father, 
had orchestrated his crucifixion. That's clear in the scriptures. Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross if God didn't arrange for it. God arranged for it. He orchestrated the crucifixion. It was the worst suffering ever. And he orchestrated it in order to accomplish the greatest work of God, the reunion of God and humanity, our real meeting, our real fellowship, our real beholding of him and seeing him and trusting in him for our salvation. Our God suffers with us, for us, and as one of us, not just to be able to relate to us and sympathize with us in our sufferings. He does that so that he can know what it's like to be a human. But not just that, not just to be able to relate to us, he suffers with us and for us and as one of us so that we can relate to him so that we can know what he is like. Do you see your pain, whatever it is, whatever your suffering is, you've probably got multiple ways in which you're suffering, physically, psychologically, emotionally, relationally. Do you see your pain as places where you can meet God? As connection points to the life of Christ, as ways in which you can relate to him and sympathize with him. He gives you that privilege. Do you have those eye-opening aha moments where you say, oh, this is what it's like to suffer for love's sake. Oh, this is what it's like to be humiliated like he was. Oh, This is what he must have felt when he was tormented and in anguish, deeply distressed because of the spiritual state of the people that he cared for. This is what it was like to be abandoned and rejected. Do you look at your own suffering and say, oh, this is what it's like for Jesus to to have been betrayed and to be crushed? Now, Now I can see what it means for God to be God. He gives you that privilege. Can you see that? It's the hardest thing to see that God turns everything into an opportunity to know him, but Jesus can make you see it. He can give you new sight. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray again for eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to know and hearts to feel you, what you're like, to be able to perceive who you are, who you are to us, who you are with us, who you are for us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray for that help because um, otherwise it's We're just staring in the dark at a brick wall, trying to make sense of the world, trying to make sense of ourselves and our relationship to you. But you have not left us in the dark. You've given us the light of the world. And he is able to open our eyes. And so we pray that the Savior would do so, so that we can have a relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
As we prepare to come to the table, let's stand and confess our faith together using Colossians chapter 1. Christian, who is Jesus Christ? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities.